The Web Delix podcast exists to educate, illuminate, and inform. It does not provide medical advice or recommendations as to any course of treatment, mental health or otherwise. You should always consult with a physician or other licensed healthcare professional, mental health or otherwise, before pursuing any personal growth program or course of treatment. The future of mental health treatment and peak performance enhancement is here. Welcome to the WebDelix podcast, brought to you by WebDelix, your trusted resource for plant medicine information on the web. By sharing real stories, expert interviews, and honest conversations, we're here to go beyond the myths and get to the truth. Here's your host, Scott Mason. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the WebDelix podcast. I'm your host, Scott Mason, and we're on a journey to find the truth about plant medicines, get rid of the myths, and change the narrative. With us today is Darren LeBaron. Darren is an educator, researcher, and event organizer based in the UK. Known around the world for his shroom shop masterclasses, Darren is a keen mushroom cultivator, psychedelic researcher, and historian. He's been growing gourmet and medicinal mushrooms for over 10 years and has translated his homegrown experience into social enterprise. Darren, welcome to the show. Nice one, Scott. I feel welcome. Thank you for the introduction. How are you doing? I am great, and I am all the better because we are going to have a conversation that I've been very excited about having. Now, the topic today is the history of psychedelics and why so much of it has been kept quiet. I'm just going to frame the episode a little bit because I'm someone who's not an expert in the psychedelic space. I'm someone who's curious, wants to learn more from folks like you. But as someone who's a non-expert, I'm walking into the conversation, I'll be honest with you, with some stereotypes. I associate it with people who might be kind of edgy or bad, maybe artists that are using it to kind of just do crazy things or, or have problems, or maybe people that are a little bit close to the fringe of society. These are the stereotypes I'm not necessarily saying are true. If anything, I'm beginning to learn how untrue they are. But I wanted to talk a little bit about where these stereotypes come from as this show progresses. But maybe we could step back and talk a little bit about psychedelics themselves. As people might be using them today for whatever reasons, but they came from somewhere. Talk to us a little bit about what you know about the origins of psychedelics in human culture. Wow. Just like kind of piggybacking off your, you know, your initial introduction into psychedelics and those stereotypes, you know, in all honesty, like those stereotypes are true in the sense of that they are stereotypes and the stereotypes that I also inherited prior to my own research, you know, so that's like a common school of thought, you know, all around the world. So, um, yeah, we want to change and break that narrative. And what you find is that a pastoral people who basically follow cattle from place to place as they graze the lands would come into contact with the byproduct of some of the gifts that these cows provide. And one of the gifts that the cows provide is their waste, their dung, and that which grow, um, you have what we call psilocybin or magic mushrooms that grow from the dung. So what you find in within the mythologies of these groups, this is where we get some of the notions of sacred cows, holy cows, you know, or these sacred cow cults or bull cults, because the gift that the cows provided was the psilocybin mushrooms that were growing from their dung. How did you come to be interested in this world? I was 
always interested in discovering myself, you know, as, as young as I can remember, nursery, primary school, you know, secondary or high school education, as you guys refer to it, all the way through, I was a curious child asking questions, you know, those same questions, like, what are we doing here? What is the purpose of life? Like, what is this all about? And that led me to get into a stage in my life where I realised that school didn't, and education didn't give me those answers that I was felt, you know, I was satisfied with. So that inspired me ultimately to go and start doing my own research, doing my own Googles before Google at that time. But, you know, picking up books, doing research, learning about who are humans, where do we come from? When it came around ultimately to psychedelics, because prior to that I was into, you know, like, we all dream. I've, I've, you know, I've been fascinated by dreams. Like, what are dreams? Like, why do we dream? Like, people dream the future. People prophesize through dreams, you know. This, dreams play a big part in the in world experiences, you know, like inventions have been provided to us by way of, you know, inspirations from dreams. So all these things I've always been interested in, studied them, and eventually got to a point where, you know, psychedelics kept on coming up as an option for curating altered states of consciousness, which I was fully aware now that was really key to personal development and growth. I mean, my early teens, late teens, and you know, going through that, you know, puberty and so forth. For me, psychedelics was a no-no. Like all those stereotypes that you heard, like that's what I heard. Like that's what druggies do. That's like not good. You know, just say no, you know, just say no. So, you know, and culturally where I come from as well, you know, like I was, as I matured, I became more comfortable in exploring, you know, alcohol, cannabis, for example. These were, you know, culturally accepted in my community. But beyond that, that was basically like what the white boys were dealing with. So I had to explore psychedelics several times as far as doing research and fully come around to understanding that I can't keep pushing this thing out the way because it keeps coming up and you can't read about this thing. You can't watch a DVD about it. It's something that you need to experience like sex. Nobody can't ex explain to you what an orgasm is. You have to have one to, to know. So I thought, well, at least let me experience this experience, you know, and then make a qualified decision from then. Talk to us a little bit about your own psychedelic journey. How did it change you? Starting from the beginning to now, I've had many different experiences. But ultimately, on a base level, Scott, always highlight to people, it's allowed me to drop my load. Like on a personal level, I've been able to drop my load. There we have layers like onions, as people make reference to. And I used to carry a load with me around that didn't serve me well. So what it's enabled me to do is lighten that, that load. It's allowed me to look in the mirror and appreciate the good, the bad and the beautiful, ugly inside of myself. Like it's allowed me to be comfortable in my own skin. The, this in itself was the liberation that I personally needed that beyond traveling the multiverse and going here, there and anywhere that you could potentially do on psychoactives, I think for me, that's the most important role that it's played in my human life and that I would want to share or have others share in that experience. So you're no longer walking around blaming people, pointing fingers, you know, have, making excuses. Like you, you know where you fit in this world. And that would be part of the initiation rights that you would have experienced as a teenager going through into puberty, where you wouldn't have got into your 30s or 40s having a midlife crisis, wondering why you're here. So this is like some of the, the offerings that, you know, these plants and technologies have to offer. Darren, you're really touching on some powerful stuff here because I've heard this not via this podcast, but just on my own personal development journey. And you hear this a lot from people that are in the personal development world, which is that a lot of times there are existential crises that folks have uh, about who they are and how they fit into the world because a lot of the rituals that might have existed previously that were the gateways into your social role are gone. 
At the same time, we have an expectation or at least the possibility out there that people create a social construction of who and what they are in the world on their own without necessarily any tools to guide them. And sort of thinking about what you just said, I can't help but wonder, look, when I was 41, I had a midlife crisis. All of a sudden, I woke up and it was like, I don't know who I am, why I'm here, what I'm on this earth for. I didn't have the tools, nor had I had the mystery system initiations to give me any process for figuring that out. I can't help then but wonder if to the extent that, if I'm hearing you right, old mystery systems were incorporating psychedelics uh, use into them, that having had access to them, look, might have even helped give me clarity when it came to that point in my life and I didn't know where I was going. Yeah, for real. Well, for the most part, you know, you know, it suggested, like, it comes up many times, like, how young should, you know, people be able to take psychedelics, you know, wait till the brain matures and, you know, these, these kind of notions and narratives that flow around. But when you check out indigenous cultures, for the most part, still to this day, you know, you're actually partaking in it pre-birth. So like a lot of the time, children are conceived under the influence of these, these sacred plants and technologies. The mothers, while they're forming a child in the womb, they're partaking in these substances, they're microdosing. When the child is being was born, and being nurtured through the breast milk, the mother is, the ch children are getting access to this. So at the latest, it would be when you reach puberty that you would have your first deliberate conscious experience. You wouldn't have moved into manhood or womanhood without having the experience. Like how dare you move into manhood or womanhood and not know who you are? That would be kind of like why the rites of passages were set up for you not to be in your 30s and 40s, hitting that crossroads, hitting that brick wall, because you would have known who you are at 10, 11, 12, 13 years old. And you would have been given support and the tools to get you where you need to get to. This is kind of paradigm shifting and mind blowing for me. I'm, I'm just keeping real with you. So you're saying that in some of these indigenous cultures, uh, and I assume you're talking in large part about Africa, but maybe elsewhere. So clarify as we go forward. Africa as well as Central and South America included. Thank you. I appreciate that correction very, very much. You're saying that literally, I, and I, that would make sense, if the mystery systems that people are engaging in include addressing issues like sexuality and if they include psychedelics, psychedelics then therefore might be incorporated into the sexual experiences that are embedded within that culture. Mm. Obviously, then, if the child is conceived via a sexual experience that is an, under the influence of some of these psychedelics, and then the parents are continuing to use them as part of their mystery system practice, you're, you're right. That would make sense, then, that these would be more deeply embedded in the culture and almost part of the development that anyone would have. Am I understanding all this correctly? Yeah, that's how I understand it. You know, man, exactly how I understand it. Not everybody's singing from the same hymn sheet, you know, but in principle, that's how, you know, that's how it's been implemented in these cultures that utilize this. You know, you see that, you know, as I said, you're not moving into adulthood without having this experience, without stepping into yourself, without stepping into the cave, without climbing the mountain. You know, these mythologies, these myths that are associated with you discovering the hero's journey. It's a lifelong journey, but we're going to give you the heads up and the tools that you need. So, as I said, you're not hitting those brick calls when you're in your 30s and 40s asking, you know, what you're, what you're here for. Wow. I've got to say, when thinking about indigenous cultures or other cultures generally, it's so 
easy for an implicit bias to seep in. And I'm not saying this in some way to just be politically correct, but to say the assumptions about how a culture might operate are so defined by how we operate as a culture Mm. that it can be impossible to even imagine a cultural framework like the one that you've described. And so to me, and I am I would be shocked if I'm not the only one who is listening to this and kind of sitting here with their mind blown because this is showing the extent to which every day people like me are walking around with cultural blinders on. Oh, yeah, most definitely. Because, you know, for the most part, we were all educated or miseducated by the same systems, no matter whether you're in the States or, you know, me here in the UK, the narrative that sets up these empires, these modern empires to be the be-all and end-all and the peak of existence, the peak of humanity. And then we look back and say, well, what came before us was barbaric, was primitive, you know, was was ancient, is, you know, outdated. When in actuality, you know, I had a, a conversation today for another, you know, uh, magazine interview, and they were saying, like, for a perfect example, being it was like, you know, there's this this new wave, this newfound interest in mushrooms, you know, as a whole, you know, as as far as the role that they play in society, the role they're playing in replacing packaging and clothing and things like this. And they said, like, this is all new. I said, no, actually, we're just coming full circle because you're going to find out that if you don't remember that the, the clothing that original peoples were making were made from plant material. You know, like all the things that we're saying we're advancing and getting back and are sustainable are the ways that we started. And our advancement in the West that's now become the West is actually more destructive. And then, as I said, we look back and at these groups and think, oh, they're primitive, barbaric or whatever it is. But actually, they were a lot more advanced than we give them credit for. And there's still a lot more that we could learn from them, Scott. How and why do you think that that shift occurred, particularly with regards to psychedelics? You know, there's multiple reasons why, you know, like historically, you know, there's always been like a hierarchy of some sort. And all I can say is that over the years, it's become more corrupt when, you know, according to the some of the original teachings that I'm hearing around psychoactive plants, there was a point in time where everybody had access. Everybody had the direct experience. Why was that? So we don't have a bunch of believers. You will know in the existence of a supernatural, so to speak, unseen world. You would have experienced, you would have engaged it, you would have interacted with it. You know, you don't longer have to believe. Once we create a hierarchy where somebody is speaking, engaging, communicating on your behalf, like a priest who is the one who speaks to God on your behalf and you then have to deal with the priest, you then get people maybe who started off honest, but as we move through history, you see that it gets more corrupt and people are taking advantage of that. So it goes from everybody having a direct experience and having true holy communion to communicate with the holy. And then we come together as a collective and that is a group divination. So I'm gonna experience, Scott is gonna experience, everyone's gonna experience. And then we come back and we share our experiences and that becomes the group's divination. That gives us an understanding of who's who, what's what, and all the rest of it. But if now we're relying on one person or a handful of people to go in and report back to us what's going on, there may be somewhere down the line some manipulation taking place. And that's where we get the church and many other things that came into play that were able to control or wanted to control the masses. So they replace key ingredients that would allow you to have direct experiences and were able to shift around, you know, the dynamics and control the masses. Well, you're raising some really 
fascinating points here. And I'm glad that you said that last set of sentences because I was going to dive into it no matter what you were going <laughs> to say. You just happened to open the door more beautifully than I could have. So one of the things that's interesting in thinking about the church itself, the Catholic church in particular, is that it has an intermediary between the divine and the lay person. The need to control who has access to the tools that are, to the various tools that can give people or meaning and, and the ability to control those resources could only, I would imagine, lead to someone being higher up on a hierarchy. And if that's the case, I can't help but wonder then if that was how some of the stigmatization of this began. Yeah, well, from my understanding, that's how it's played out, you know, like even prior to the Roman Catholic Church in the Greek mythology and Egyptian mythology and history, it suggests, you know, like the priesthood became corrupt, you know, that's, you know, that, you know, that's the term I'm using, you know, like, so over the years, it's got to a point where as information has been passed on or being downloaded, you know, human beings are like, you know, how can we, like we do today, how can, like with mushrooms right now and psychedelics right now, how can I monopolize? How can I capitalize on this? You know, like people are not thinking about the people, they're thinking about themselves. So when you look at you personally being able to have a direct experience and communicating with, for lack of a better term or title, God or the creator or source or divinity, and you that being removed because that's going to give you true liberation. It's going to give you your personal liberation. And now you're dependent upon somebody giving you your liberation. That's a, that, that's a big control mechanism there. And when we think of a perfect example, I mentioned earlier on, the initial rites of passage that you see in ancient Egypt, for example, or better yet Kemet, known as the open of the mouth ceremony, was all about the initiate opening their mouth to partake in some substance that would allow them to have holy communion. You know, now the church are privy to this stuff because we celebrate holy communion in the church, for example, on a Sunday when the priest is coming into the space with his whatever else it is, and they're throwing around the, the frankincense. And today they're handing over wafers, as I understand it. And those wafers originated in Hebrew, you know, tradition by way of a term known as manna, which was this bread from heaven. So it's not mother's pride. It's not naan bread, pita bread. Like it's this bread from heaven. And there's a technology or information in there that connects you back to source so you can have true holy communication. That's what holy communion is meant to be. Now, when you check these various other groups around the world that still have their sacred plant technologies and fungi technologies, and they refer to their holy sacraments or their holy woods as the tools or technologies that enable them to speak with their ancestors or the spirit world or the creative forces, this is the same technology that the church holds, but they've replaced the active ingredients and given us a wafer. That's the control. That's how, you know, like we're role playing, like we are communicating, but we're not truly communicating with all of the technologies that Earth has provided us to really being able to do that. Darren, what you're saying, though, has profound, I would even argue, socially existential implications, to use some $5 words, which almost never come out of my mouth. When, and in terms of what those implications are, direct access to the source, to the define, to our own ability to understand who we are and to connect to ourselves, the universe, and by implication of each other. If everyone were to have that in the social structure that we have right now, literally the social hierarchies that we operate in right now, I would imagine would fall apart. 
because a lot of the intermediaries wouldn't be needed. A am I misunderstanding here? No, it definitely wouldn't exist as we know it today. And this is primarily why they're moving beyond the church, then the government step in, you know, in the modern world and issue the laws that will forbid people from accessing this stuff. That's the story. That's the journey. Like down the line, it's like, well, for us to keep control, you know, we need to, you know, keep this to ourselves. And that was how it started out as these secret societies. But people had the knowledge and information around what it was, how to utilize it. And they, it might be used on special occasions, special ceremonies. It's not like an everyday thing that people are doing. In some cultures it is, but, you know, every culture is different, you know, in, in that regards. But ultimately, as we move through history and time and get to a point in place where we now, you know, the government replaces the church, the church replaces those older traditions. And it's just got tighter fisted as we've reached further down in history as far as accessing the tools as well as the information. But I have said to the to the audience in prior episodes, I'm always going to keep it honest here and I'm going to ask guests the hard questions. And so I, there's a couple of hard questions that I've got to ask because when someone is saying stuff with as far reaching, and, I, and again, I'll be honest with you, mind-blowing implications is what you are. I feel obligated to, to share that, that questioning voice. The first question I have is, well, Okay, the sinister way of looking at it would be to say the government is attempting to control everything that you've just described. But couldn't it simply be as simple as, well, the government actually cares about our safety? Okay, so one, I didn't say sinister. I didn't actually say, you know, I'm, I'm not saying it's sinister acts. I'm just saying what the acts are, you know, and I do believe in balance, yin and yang. You know, like, you need to have the hero, you need to have the villain. You know, it's just like, there's not one without the other. I don't see them as good or bad people. I just understand the relationship, the yin and the yang relationship in nature, these principles. So I'm not pointing fingers. I'm just letting you know who the villain is in the movie archetype or who the yin is, you know, versus the yang archetype. And when we move forward, we're saying that, yeah, there is some elements of, you know, taking care of the masses. But I wouldn't believe that, that as in the be all and end all reason as to why they prevented the masses from accessing that. You know, in this here and now, because we've been so far removed from this, yeah, we need to be educated. There's a lot of education that's going to be required. And that's what the initiation rites and the mystery systems were about. That was the education prior to partaking. Now that's been removed. We've got a bunch of people who don't know. So now, you know, whether it's like later on down the line, the government might say, for example, okay, we've discovered now that it's not as bad as we thought it was or it was painted to us. And we were just following protocol. You know, so I'm not pointing fingers at anyone. We were just following protocol, just like at a job. If you're a mechanic and your boss has fixed that car, you fix that car, but that could be a car of an assassin and you've helped them, you know, do a getaway. But like you're just following protocol, you know, that's just what it is. So, you know, it just is what it is in that regard. And normally what I say to folks is you've got to get in where you fit in. You know, how do you feel about it? And then what do you do about that? You know, and how do you go about educating yourself and educating others and telling the truth and shaming the devil? But I'd also encourage you to check out mythology and see how science is just catching up with mythology and how they mirror each other. And it's an amazing story to tell. I love telling it because I know it may throw people off because it's like, wow, sound like a Hollywood movie. But science supports this. We should have learned this stuff in school. That's why I'm actually currently teaching this to children in school. I'm employed by schools to teach people, young people, this narrative because they know that it's actually scientific fact. But we wasn't taught this stuff in schools. 
Thank you for that very candid answer. I'm going to ask you tough question number three, and then I want to get back to some of the main topics again, which is the information that was transmitted through these indigenous tribes way back when in their mystery systems. If it was secret, I know someone out there listening to this or watching it is saying, well, if it was such a secret, how does Darren LaBera know this? What are you going to say to that, to my homie that's going to ask me that? <laughs> Multiple reasons. There's people who have been part of these secret societies that have got a big mouth. And they look, <laughs> that's the first thing. Some of them, as we know, are no longer here because after their big mouth, they got taken out, but this stuff was recorded. And then in the rites of passages that I tap into, this stuff is actually encoded in your blood and your DNA. You know, and once you start partaking in stuff, you get, as I said, it's you, we we naturally have access to this consciousness, this collective consciousness, as it referred to. Now, if you're comfortable in your own skin and you're comfortable in processing the information that you get. I don't need to believe. Like, I don't care if you don't believe me that spores came from outer space and came and broke down the bedrock created. So I don't need you to believe in me. Like, I know. I know what I know. And I'm also aware of what I don't know. So when I put all that together in a pot, I'll give you and present to you what I present. And I'm happy and confident to say, yo, these are areas that I don't know about. But between my research, my own life experiences and psychedelic experiences, and I put all that in a pot, this is what Darren's presenting to you, man. I've got to say, one of the things that you're saying, and, and I will say, irrespective of whether someone, what someone believes about the origin of Earth or the creation of plants and, and all of that sort of stuff, the one thing that you're saying that has been echoed repeatedly in the stories of people who have had psychedelic experiences is related to this sense of connection, this sense of healing, this sense of providential, or as you're saying, source or divine partaking on a deep level. And with that in mind, it's hard not to argue then that the implications of what you're talking about, opening that up to the entire population, could really change the face of human culture. I've got to ask this question with that observation in mind or that, that line of thinking, which is you like to focus a lot of your speaking and your service in the psychedelics world on underserved communities. Is this sort of uh, idea that this is breaking free of social controls that may be limiting people part of why you do this or do you have other motivations and talk to us a little bit about that no because being somebody of african heritage by way of the caribbean who was born and bred in the united kingdom i was disconnected from my true story you know the hunter has been telling my story for as long as i know so as a child as i said i realized that and i've been wanting to serve myself so when I see people who look like me, people who have gone through similar experiences to me, I feel their pain. I feel their experiences. So I speak for them from my perspective. They may not want me to speak on their behalf, but I speak, I, I speak that language. I speak that tone. I speak that frequency. It's no different from when I'm in you know, the work that I've done today. I do work for young people. And you know, I speak on behalf of young people. Why is that? Because you know, sometimes they don't have a voice. They're misunderstood. So I'm somebody who's got an ear to hear what they've got to say, and I can go out and speak on your behalf. But at the same time, I want you alongside me. I'm not going to speak on behalf of young people without young people being in the room and saying, yeah, I'll co-sign what Darren is saying on our behalf. So the fact that I do the work that I do, which is in this country, we call them the hard to reach communities. What I really identified is all these titles that you give these groups are actually the group that I come from, where I was born and bred into. It wasn't a choice of mine. It's just like the way the, way the cards were dealt. So now, as and when I 
communicate with those people. It's not because I'm doing special work. It's like, it's, it's just the work that I've got to do because I come from those communities. Those are people that I see with and see and interact with on a day-to-day basis. That's the world that I live in, that I'm from. So for me, it's not like, oh, let me do this this extra kind of work. Let me do, because it's needs. Like, that's the community that I'm from. That's where, you know, that when I get up and leave my, my doorstep, I'm in a community where there's drugs and gangs and this type of stuff going on. So if I've got, if I'm working in my community, those are the people that I've got to serve. If I was... I don't know, Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, and I've got... <laughs> what do you mean? You know? <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, I would have probably a different approach into the people that I directly serve, you know, in that regard. But I guess, as I said, it's the way the cards were dealt. Well, Darren, one thing I'm a big believer of is keeping it real and being there for our homies. And that's exactly what I'm hearing with you. And I, and I can completely relate to that. I really can. There's a lot I'm gonna take away from this conversation. So much, it'll probably take me a few days to fully process it. But before we close, one thing that I wanted to just say that will really stick with me is going back to an earlier part of our conversation. When you were talking about how these substances were integrated into the day-to-day cultural life of cultures of peoples that are in a completely different place and time, my blinders have been on. And that really gets me to think about stereotypes across the board and to what extent they're informing my life, particularly when it comes to the subject of this podcast, psychedelics, and how I'm viewing people that might be exploring that. So I want to thank you for that. If there is one or two set of last words that you would like to share with us today before we close out and and tell people where they can find you, what would those be, Darren? For sure. So, you know, because we've hop, skipped and jumped in a few places, and I know if people are new to this information, it might throw them off a little and you've got to go and do your research, you've got to go and do your Googles. That's what, you know, that's what it's about. And um, I'll say that to say, because in the current narrative in this psychedelic renaissance, as it's being referred to, psychedelics have been loaded with this medicinal approach, you know, like psychedelics for therapeutic purposes, psychedelic for anxiety, depression, PTSD, you know, articles came out in the last... 24, 48 hours about psilocybin helping with alcohol recovery, alcohol addiction, stuff like that. And this is really cool because, like I said, if I step outside my house right now, I'm going to come across some drug addicts, you know, on opiate drugs, some people who are addicted to alcohol and stuff like that. That's, you know, that's the community where I live, where I'm from. But my questioning when I first started my research was, for example's sake, Iboga. I'm not sure if you're familiar with Iboga, but that was the one African psychoactive plant that I was introduced to when you go to the to the um, very popular psychedelic events and circuits and when you do the research. And Iboga is native to Central and Western Africa. That's where it's from. It's the only place you find it indigenously. Um, It's native to these lands. The people are gifted this stuff um, by nature. And according to these people, because when I heard about Ibogas from this region, it's If you was to type it in the internet right now, Iboga, enter. What's going to come back in your top 10 list is that Iboga is good for heroin addiction, alcohol recovery, trauma, and a list of other challenges that we have here in the West. So the first question that my spirit asked me to ask was, so do they have heroin addicts in Gabon, in the Congo, in the regions where this naturally comes from? No, they don't. That's what my research shows me. And later on down the line, I found out the alcoholics that they do have in these regions came in by way of the colonizers who introduced alcohol as part of the trade and stuff. But indigenously, no, they didn't have heroin or alcohol issues. So my question to myself to find out was, so what do they use it for? What do the people who it was gifted to say that these plants are for? And according to their own mythologies, just like many other groups around the world, and we'll touch on it just before we leave, is that Iboga was introduced to the people so they could communicate with their ancestors. 
101. Nothing more, nothing less beyond that was the first thing that it was given to them for. This is the technology, these are the tool that would enable men to counsel the dead. If you then go to ayahuasca, which you find only in Central, South America primarily, along the Amazon, you can go to all of these exotic trip places and spaces and have do your healing work and so forth. But if you get to the root of what the translation of it means, vine of the soul or better yet, vine of the dead, the same indigenous people will tell you that this is a technology that enables us to communicate with the dead, with our ancestors, with the spirit realm. They are not talking about anxiety, depression, PTSD. That's the, These are challenges that we have in the West. So I'm just saying that to say that if the gatekeepers, the people who are gifted this stuff, who have the most knowledge and information about it, are saying to us, this is what it's for, and we're bypassing that and saying, no, it's just for therapy, it's just for this, and this is the way that it needs to be used in clinical settings i think we're doing the plant technologies as well as the people themselves a disservice and it's disrespectful like that's where i'm coming in or stepping in in my own googles and research saying yo what then what is it about what do the people who say it's about and let's listen to them let's hear what they've got to say about it all darren this has been a genuinely fascinating conversation and i'm so grateful to you for it how can people find out more about you so fundamentally you're going to find me at my website darrenlebaron.com all the social medias are pretty much that as well. Darren LeBaron, at Darren LeBaron, you know, Instagram, Facebook, and whatever other social media platforms there are out there. On the website, you'll be able to find out my upcoming events, the work that I'm currently doing online, in person. I've currently got a new webinar series that we're about to launch, which is called Psychedelics in Africa, The Untold Story, which is going to be like eight hours worth of digital content plus resources and information that support that. And what we're going to do is start right from the beginning and bring it right through to the here and now and see where we're at now with it all, with an African-centered theme around it. And I do want to highlight, Scott, although I'm known for teaching and sharing about psychedelics in Africa, like I had a workshop just yesterday where we had 150 people there. And, you know, outside that, it was a very diverse community. And there's people that I find from Ireland, Poland, Czechoslovakia, you name it, the list is endless, where they say, yo, man, like coming to your workshop has inspired me to look into my own roots. What I've realised is that I was, I feel for that psychedelic tourism kind of narrative that we're given where I've got to go South America, put the feather in my hair, put a garb around myself and come back saying I'm a shaman. But really and truly what I've done has been, you know, the grass may look greener, but I've kind of been denying my own connections, my own roots. And you've inspired me to look back into that. So me being of African heritage by way of the Caribbean, born and bred in the UK, but not having a direct link, I've always went, I've been curious about that. I want to know who I am. And it's opened up that narrative for many others to kind of discover their English roots, to discover their Celtic roots, you know, and then you find the sacred plant technologies that are from your region that have the information in there that is relevant to you and your people. I think that's really important. So yeah, that's what my workshops and online webinar series covers and goes into. Again, breaking down stereotypes and building universal connections. Powerful stuff, Darren. Everyone listening or watching, if you've enjoyed today's episode and want to learn more, be sure to subscribe and leave a review or a comment and tell the folks that you care about what we're doing. Don't forget to follow WebDelics on Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube. And be sure to check out our website, webdelics.com. That's W-E-B-D-E-L-I-C-S. Com and sign up for our blog to get more trusted educational information about plant medicine and psychedelics. Then join us next time for another episode of the Web Delics Podcast.
The Web Delix podcast exists to educate, illuminate, and inform. It does not provide medical advice or recommendations as to any course of treatment, mental health or otherwise. You should always consult with a physician or other licensed healthcare professional, mental health or otherwise, before pursuing any personal growth program or course of treatment.